2 Corinthians chapter 3, thus saith the Lord. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, that veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This bars the reading of God's Word. Please be seated. Because we have not been preaching through 2 Corinthians, uh, a little bit of background to the book I think will be helpful. When you read through the book, it becomes obvious that one of the main things that the Apostle Paul is dealing with are false apostles that have crept into the church at Corinth. So there are men who have come into the church claiming to be apostles, and in the process, they've been trying to um, denigrate the authority of the legitimate apostles so that their authority and their power in the church might increase. Paul's got too much say, so they're trying to put Paul and his companions down so that they can have a larger leadership role in the church. And so many of the final uh, chapters of 2 Corinthians is Paul sort of defending his ministry. Why you ought to reject what he sarcastically calls these super apostles and continue in the faith that I have delivered to you. And that clearly starts in chapter 3. We see him bring this up in the first four verses. Let's read those together again. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts, such as the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. 
So Paul, clearly, he is nervous about his reputation in the churches, and so he very sarcastically asks them, do I need to, like, recommend myself to you? Do I need to prove myself? Are, are you looking for a letter of rec? Do I need a letter of recommendation, or do I need to ask you to write one for me? He's, sar- he's being sarcastic here, but then he turns his sarcasm into a very real, serious point. He says, I'll do you one better. I will give you a letter of recommendation, and it's you. You are my proof of the validity of my ministry. You are the proof of the authenticity of my ministry. He says, I have something better than a letter of recommendation written on paper. I have you. And what's he referring to? Not just their once strong connection, but he specifically is referring to their transformation. The only proof... I need of my ministry, says the Apostle Paul, is the fact that it is through me and through my preaching and through my teaching that you have been transformed. You are not the same people when I first met you. You have been transformed through my ministry. You have been transformed through my message and my teaching. That's my letter of recommendation. That's my proof. You are the proof. Which is a powerful message, but the danger of that message is it might come across braggadocious. Right? Now, now, in his attempt to commend himself, he might be looking as if he's bragging about himself. And so he very quickly goes on to, to, to clarify why he's not bragging. And that's what he begins with in verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So Paul is trying to be clear. I'm not boasting when I say that it is my covenant that changed you, that it is my ministry that transformed you, because he's saying the sufficiency doesn't come from me. It comes from the God working in and through me. It comes from the Holy Spirit who is in the new covenant that I am merely a vessel, merely an administrator of. So he's saying it's not really me who has transformed you, but the Holy Spirit in and through the faith that I have delivered to you. And so what he begins to do is he begins to show them that the proof of my ministry is actually the work of the Holy Spirit. You all once were dead until the power of God in the Holy Spirit came to you through me and gave you life. Your life is the proof of my ministry. And he compares this life to the letter which kills. He says the Spirit is the life giver. The Spirit gives life, but it is the letter that kills. What he is referencing here in that letter is now the old covenant Because he has just worked in this idea that we are administrators of a new covenant. What might be happening here, we don't know for sure, but the false apostles who came in, probably, we don't know what they were or what they were teaching, but they were probably really emphasizing the old covenant. There was probably some kind of return to the old covenant in their message, which is why it makes sense for Paul now to show the superiority, not of Moses' covenant, but of his covenant. The covenant that he has administered. And so he begins to compare the new and the old covenant. And he describes the old covenant as the letter. Because what he is most likely talking about is not the entire teaching of everything in the Old Testament. But specifically the law. The Ten Commandments that were given to Moses. That's the letter that was written on stone. And he says that letter does not give you life. On the contrary, it kills you. 
The law kills you, but the covenant that I have delivered, the message that I have delivered does not kill you, but by the Holy Spirit, it gives you life. Now, it's important for us to understand what he means by it kills us. The idea being that the law, all the law is able to do for sinners is condemn you. If you're a sinner and someone gives you a law, there's no hope there. It's just a mirror that shows you how wicked you actually are. So all Moses, when Moses received the Ten Commandments, all he could do with those Ten Commandments is kill people, is condemn them, is hold up their sin in front of their face. All the old law can do is destroy us. It cannot regenerate us. The law cannot give us life. It can show us what life would look like, but it cannot actually impart life to you. All the law can do is condemn you. So that's why the law kills but it is the Spirit who gives life. Now, Paul wants to clarify something else now. It would be really easy when you hear that message to think, okay, law, bad, Holy Spirit, good. Right? Old covenant, ugh, bad, scary, new covenant, really good. And Paul doesn't, that you're taking his message too far. So he wants to clarify the Old Testament law is good and the Old Covenant is good. We don't want to think of the transition from old to new covenant as going from something bad to good. Rather, according to Paul, we want to think of something as going from something great to something far greater. Something glorious to something even more glorious, right? And that's what he clarifies. Let's read that, verses 7 through 11. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once has glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory." So again, according to Paul, when you think of the law, when you think of the Old Covenant, when you read your Old Testament, what you need to think of is glory. This is glorious. And Paul's proof of that is when God, when God actually delivered the law to Moses, why was there so much theatrics if we're supposed to think of this thing as like this uh, gross, nasty thing? I mean, do you remember the account? Do you remember the lightning and the thunder and the mountains shaking and the terror of the people? And God himself communing with Moses and Moses not being able to see anything but his back lest he die from the glory of God. God himself writing on the tablets of stone. If this is a bad thing, why does it have so much glory? And what Paul specifically references is Moses was so near to the glory of God that it literally physically transformed his face. His face literally had an emanating glory. And because the Israelites were so sinful and so afraid and so far from God, they couldn't see it. So Moses had to physically veil his face because it was just too glorious. Now he's going to take that veil and use it in a metaphor in a moment. But the point that he's making up to this point is when you look at what, how God delivered the law, you cannot conclude from it that this was a bad thing. This is a glorious thing. The law is good and glorious. It is more glory than you and I deserve. But his point is saying this. How privileged should we feel that what we have is even more glorious than that? What we have in the New Testament is more glorious than glorious. 
And that's why they should stick with Paul and they should stick with his covenant and they should stick with his message. Why? Because if they go back to the law, as glorious as it is, all the law can do for them is kill them. But what can Paul's message do by the power of the Spirit? Give them life. Just as Jesus tells us in John, it is the Spirit, not the law, it is the Spirit that who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken are spirit and life. So we have clearly in this text at the end of verse 6, the confession we've been looking for in the Nicene Creed. Who is the Spirit? He's the life giver. The Spirit is the one who gives life. And so perhaps the most important thing we can do with the rest of our time in this text is we could try to better understand what exactly does that mean, right? What is the life that the Holy Spirit gives to us? It is true that the Holy Spirit is the giver of your physical life, of your natural life. That is very true. It is the Holy Spirit who formed you in your mother's womb. It is the Holy Spirit who creates our bodies. It is the Holy Spirit who creates our souls. Uh, Job affirms this, saying, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Right? We see this also hinted at as Paul gives the resurrection power to the Spirit, saying in Romans, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So the Holy Spirit is the one who made your first body, and He's the one who's going to make your glorified, resurrected body. He's the one who made your soul. He's the one who reconstitutes your soul. The Holy Spirit is the author of our physical life. But I don't think that's what the Creed is talking about. And that's certainly not what 2 Corinthians 3 is talking about. Rather... The creed in 2 Corinthians 3 is talking about spiritual life. It is the Holy Spirit who imparts spiritual life to us. And the fancy theological term we call this is regeneration. Which simply means to be reborn as the language that Jesus uses. To be regenerated, reborn, rebirthed, recreated. The Holy Spirit regenerates us. I said Jesus used the word reborn. We saw that not long ago in our sermon series in John. Where Jesus himself tells Nicodemus, he answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is a rebirth, a regeneration, new life that the Holy Spirit gives to us. And Jesus attributes it very clearly to God's Holy Spirit. And so that's what the creed means, and that's what Paul is talking about in verse 6. It is the Holy Spirit who transforms us from our deadness of sin into the newness of life. He regenerates us. But what I love about 2 Corinthians 3 is it starts to get into some of the nitty-gritty details about regeneration. Not a full picture, but it helps us see the parts or the movements of the Spirit in this broad regeneration work. And so I want us to look at those things. And I've got two things for you, two sort of aspects or the parts or the movements of regeneration. You can title it however you want. Two things. The first one that Paul references is this idea of illumination. The Spirit 
regenerates you first by illuminating you, right? A, a light bulb is an illumination, something that brings light into darkness, something that shines light. The Holy Spirit illuminates us. Look at verses 12 through 16. <coughs> Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Let's stop there. So Paul is still focused on the glory of the Old Testament. And he now gives this brief explanation as to why do these super apostles not see what he sees. As a matter of fact, not just them. Why do so many Jews especially in Paul's day, but even in our own day. The, the, the very people who have been studying these scriptures and reading these scriptures, who were entrusted with these scriptures, why don't they see what Paul sees in them? Why do they not see the same glory? Because as Paul says in this text, what is the glory in the Old Testament? It's Christ. You do not know the glory of the Old Testament until you have found Christ in there. You do not know the glory of the Old Testament until you see how it is all ultimately about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Jews reject Christ. They reject the gospel, which means they reject the glory of the Old Testament. It's just a stale, static law for them and nothing else. Why don't they see it? Are, the, are, are Jewish people not smart? Are we just smarter than Jewish people? We're just so much smarter. We're just so much better. Why does Paul see it and so many of his fellow kinsmen don't? Why do we see it and yet so many people don't? Well, he gives us that answer, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The reason we have been freed from the blindness that is over our eyes, the old covenant is veiled to us, and our hearts and our minds are hardened to it. We are enslaved to that. And the freedom that we find when we are released from the veil, when we are released from the darkness, when we are released from the hardness, it comes when we have found the Spirit. It is the Spirit who takes the veil away. It is the Spirit who opens up our minds, better yet illuminates us, to the true glory of the scriptures. He enables us to see Christ in scripture. As a matter of fact, if, if you think that maybe, well, this is kind of, uh, maybe you think I'm reading too much into that verse or something like that, let me just remind you that this is not the first time the Apostle Paul has said something like this to Corinth. He said this very thing with even more clarity in his first epistle to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 Speaking of the gospel, he says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritual. 
spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. I would argue Paul could not be clearer. The reason some people don't understand the gospel, don't see it in the scriptures, is because it is the Spirit who illuminates this truth to natural men, who, left to themselves, cannot understand They are unable to see it. They are blinded. They are veiled. He is the one who shines light. He is the one who gives us understanding. And we could say, what is it he gives us understanding to? The answer to that is technically the gospel. But if we go back to 2 Corinthians 3, Paul's not just talking about the gospel. He's talking about finding the gospel in the scriptures. The Holy Spirit illuminates us not just to the gospel, but more specific or more broadly to the scriptures. He is the one who gives us understanding of the scriptures. And this brings in the other very important aspect of the creed. The creed not only says something about him as life giver, it also affirms him as the one who spoke through the prophets. The creed is recognizing the prophets of old and therefore all of their writings are actually inspired, produced by the Holy Spirit. They are the writings of men, but they're more than the writings of men. They are the teachings and words of God's Holy Spirit. This is why we call our Bibles infallible, which means impossible to err. Our Bibles cannot err. They can't be wrong. Because they are the product not just of men, but more importantly, of the God who cannot be wrong. They are the words of the God who cannot lie. They are inspired by the Holy Spirit. We live in a day and age where a lot of self-professing Christians have a very low view of Scripture. And there are many Christians who do not agree with the inerrancy or the infallibility of the Scriptures. But let me just tell you that if you do decide to disagree with me, you're not actually disagreeing with me. You're disagreeing with the Apostles' own view of the Scriptures. What the creed says is very much what the apostles themselves believed. Let me give you some proofs of that. The author of Hebrews quotes from the Old Testament, and look at what the author of Hebrews says. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, he quotes an Old Testament scripture, but he doesn't attribute it to the Old Testament author. He attributes it to who? The Holy Spirit. The Apostle Peter, likewise, was a well of this. Read this verse from one of his first sermons ever preached as a Spirit-filled believer. Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who are arrested. So Peter believes that when David wrote, when David spoke, it wasn't just David speaking. It wasn't just David writing. It was the Holy Spirit. In fact, Peter had such a well-developed doctrine of of inspiration. Peter's the one who calls everything Paul wrote scripture. And Peter's the one who left us with one of the greatest passages we have in all the Bible about inspiration. From 1 Peter chapter 2, he says this, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. There's illumination through the scriptures. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
The apostolic view of the Old Testament is that it was written by men, yes, but under inspiration and guidance of God's Holy Spirit. And this is not limited to just the Old Testament. Jesus made this very same promise to the apostles. He says this in John, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine, therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit not only led the prophets of old into all truth, but he has also led the apostles into all truth, which is why our Bibles come together as the testimony of the prophets and the apostles. Because these were the inspired men of God writing and speaking under inspiration of the Holy Scripture so that we can, with Paul, say, all Scripture is breathed out by God, making it profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. That's the doctrine of inspiration. Now, how does this matter to this concept of regeneration and illumination? Like, did I just go on this wild rabbit trail here? The answer to that is no. The reason this matters is because the words of the prophets and the apostles are the tools that the Holy Spirit uses in your illumination. In other words, people don't just fall asleep one night and then the Holy Spirit just saves them. They just woke up, whoa, I'm saved, I'm regenerated, new life, wow. No, He comes to us and regenerates us. He gives us life through the very words that He wrote. So, inspiration is the other side of the illumination coin. There is no illumination without inspiration, and there is no inspiration without illumination. They are a package deal. The Spirit takes His Word that He produced, He created, He brings that Word to you, and then He opens up your mind to understand it and to cherish it. The Spirit inspires the message and then illuminates your mind to the message that He has inspired. And all of this is the first stage of regeneration. You begin the newness of life when inspired word of God comes to you and the Spirit gives you an understanding and delight of it. That's the first step, illumination. You come to see what unbelievers don't see, which is the glory and truth and blessedness of the God-breathed scriptures, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that is only our first step. Our second step is what I'm calling, well, not what I call, what the church calls sanctification. The first step of regeneration is illumination, illuminating you to the inspired gospel, the inspired scriptures. And then the second step is sanctification. Read verse 18 with me. And we all, now with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. According to Paul, once the Spirit gives us new hearts, new understandings of Scripture, a new faith in Jesus, and we now behold the glory of the Lord, He lifts the veil, we have the glory of Christ, we believe it, but we're not done yet. The Spirit now begins a process of transformation. We are beholding the glory of the Lord and the Spirit is conforming us into that glory. He's making us into that image. The Spirit is giving us the life of Christ. He's turning us into Christ. 
And that's what we mean most often, not all the times, but most often when you hear a theologian or a book use the word sanctification, that's what they're referring to. Sanctification is the lifelong process of the Holy Spirit within us making us holy. This isn't part, by the way, why we call him the Holy Spirit. Why does he get the name holy? Why not the Holy Son? Why not the Holy Father? Aren't they all holy? Why does the Spirit get the name holy? Part of that is because the Bible mentions lots of spirits. We need to make sure we distinguish which the important spirit is. But one of the other reasons is it's a reflection of his primary job, which is to make God's church holy. That's his job. He's making you holy. He's transforming you. And that was Paul's proof. Do you remember all the way back at the beginning? It is through my message that the Holy Spirit has come to you. How do I know that? Because you've been remade. You've been transformed. That's the evidence of the Holy Spirit within us. I'm not who I ought to be. But hallelujah, I'm not who I was. That's the Holy Spirit. We are being transformed and being made even more glorious as the Spirit moves and works within us. And so if I were to sort of summarize this message for you, I would say this. What does it mean when we confess in the creed that this Holy Spirit is the giver of life? What does it mean to call him the life giver? It means that the Spirit illuminates our minds to see Christ, draws us to him, and then conforms us into his image. Let me say that again. What does it mean to confess biblically that the Spirit is the giver of life? It means that the Holy Spirit illuminates our minds to see Christ, he draws us to him, and then he conforms us into his image. That's the life the Spirit has and is giving us. And we have to conclude by saying this, as the creed does, if we're going to affirm that about the Holy Spirit, then we must affirm that He is the Lord. We do not merely confess that He is the giver of life, but that He is the Lord and the giver of life. And we confess that with Paul. This isn't the Nicene Creed speaking. This is Paul speaking. Look again at verse 18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We confess not just with Nicaea but with Paul that the Spirit is the Lord. And after all that we've learned, I ask you rhetorically, how could he not be? Who else has the power to create life ex nihilo from nothing? Who else has the power to raise the dead? Who else has the power to regenerate sinners, to sanctify human souls? We confess with Paul that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Blessed Trinity, our God and our Lord. Now, we're going to discuss that issue more next week. We're going to dive deeply into this idea of how He is God. Why we worship Him. But let me just conclude by reminding us that in our text today, we call him Lord. And that's important. It says a few things about the Spirit that we have to believe. The first thing it says is that he is not an angel. The Holy Spirit of God is not an angel. Because no angel is the Lord. God is the Lord. An angel is not God. The Holy Spirit is not an angel. He's the Lord. Another thing it tells us... It refutes a very popular belief among non-Trinitarians that the Holy Spirit is just a reference to a power, to a force. That the Holy Spirit is just the force of the Father, like gravity. You don't call a power Lord. You don't call an inanimate object the Lord. If He's the Lord, that makes Him not a force, but a person. 
He is a person, like Jesus says in John 3, it is he who makes decisions. He chooses like the wind where he will go. He is not a force. He is not a spirit. Or forgive me, he is not an angel. He is the Lord. He is your and my God. And he is worthy of our worship because he is the Lord. And he is worthy of our gratitude because he is the one who gave us life. It is the spirit who took all of us who once were blind. But by his amazing grace, now we see.